Hello, and welcome to Grapevine, the podcast where we untangle the stories that shape private and public discourse. I'm Jasmine Hall. I teach courses in literature, film, and other storytelling media at Elms College. And this is my co-host, William Wright, a freelance storyteller. We share an interest in uncovering the often surprising ways in which human perceptions are influenced by the stories we hear. In this episode, we're going to focus on narratives pertaining to current gender roles, as we covered the history of gender roles last time. That's right. This is part two of our gender series, I guess you could say. I don't know if we're going to have a part three or not. I guess we'll have to see how this one goes. See how much we get done (laughs) in an hour. (laughs) Yeah. But really, uh, if we wanted to sum up everything from part one, or not so much sum up, but draw a brief picture of where we are now, it is that today what we're left with after uh, so many years of gender construction and gender narratives is what's often called a gender binary. Right. And that's what we're going to call it here in our discussion, too, is the gender binary. And what the gender binary is, is simply it's a cultural construct that leads us to put every single person, uh, not just in our culture, but every single human being, into one of two categories, either male or female. And in our culture especially, we are taught to believe that our assignment of someone into one of these two categories, male or female, is based upon whatever they're determined to be when they're born, based on some physical sex characteristics. And that it's as simple as that. You're either born a male or born a female, and from that point forward, you belong in one of these two categories. Now, you know, we acknowledge that some people are born with both sex characteristics. There are also a lot of people in the culture who challenge uh, this gender binary, right. especially young people, uh, you know, that's why that's where we get the concept of guy liner <laughs> and you know, young teenage boys wearing uh, uh, nail polish and everything like that. Okay. And and challenge of the gender binary has been around for a long time. You know, people have been doing it uh, for several decades now. But in spite of all of these challenges to the gender binary, that is to say, in how we've got people, well, think of uh, those female athletes who have been challenged by athletics boards because, you know, they have so much testosterone in their blood and it's found out that that it's because they're trans sex. Right, right. Uh, and so they're tested and challenged and people debate about whether or not these women can compete with other women in sports. These things happen. These things are talked about. But none of these things ever significantly challenge this notion that there are two genders based on two sexes, and everybody fits into one category or the other, and that's all there is to it. And beyond that, it's not just a simple assignment, and everybody's walking around to sign these things, but there are specific behavioral expectations tied to each category. And in some cases, as, as we discussed in the first episode, based on how the history of gender evolved, it eventually came to this oppositional kind of situation where uh, frequently the characteristics in one gender are the exact opposite in the other. Right, right. And there tends to be a division of these things into one or the other, and there aren't very many characteristics that are allowed to be shared in both. And I would also point out that this seems to reflect 
uh, reinforce and sometimes undergird a general tendency in our culture to divide things into two. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, we're, we're constantly, everything's a duality. We're constantly black and white and, you know, communist and capitalist and uh, Democrat and Republican. Everything has to have at least two categories and they're two absolutely oppositional. Yeah, categories. oppositional, I think, is the, is even more important actually than the fact that they're binaries, that they're, they're seen as oppositional. Exactly, exactly. So that's the foundational concept, really, that really informs where we're at today with gender. But there's a lot to say about that because, for example, what are those characteristics, uh, male characteristics, supposedly female characteristics? Uh, what What is the impact of this? Is this just, does this binary just exist out there and it, it just affects people psychologically or does it have an impact on the real world? You know, and that's, those are the kinds of things we want to focus on uh, today. And uh, to that particular topic, Jazz, in terms of how it impacts things in the real world, you've got quite a few statistics there that speaks to that. Right. I, I did want to add one point to what you were saying about the people who are seen as somehow um, outside the binary, like uh, female athletes who have are showing a lot of testosterone, is that we focus, I think we focus so much on those cases because we want to try to define, we want to place those people into the binary. Right, so, right. so we're very focused on how are we going to define this person. If we weren't so interested in the binary, I, I don't think it would matter and we wouldn't those cases wouldn't draw so much attention. Well, we might not segregate a lot of athletics at all. Yeah, that's true. In some cases. So the the real world effects of this kind of gender binary that, that are still going on, I, I think of us kind of dividing some of what we're talking about today into how some of those oppositional gender roles that um, were, uh, they had cultural work to do, like, suggesting why women couldn't get the vote. That kind of institutional barrier obviously has changed, but there are still institutional barriers that are, are up there that haven't really changed, even though people might think they have. I know a lot of people argue today that we don't need feminism anymore because sexism doesn't exist, and, and yet it, it really does. Maybe it exists in ways that are more subtle, um, that people are a little less aware of. But just to cover some of the statistics that I've been reading recently about the effect on work, these are statistics from recent study that was done for a book called The New Soft War on Women. So these are comparing various job categories. So we're Comparing apples to apples, and the main difference is what gender the person is. So female physicians earn, on average, 39% less than male physicians. Female financial analysts earn less, earn 35% less than male financial analysts. Female CEOs earn 25% less than male CEOs. Female MBAs earn around $4,600 less in their first job than male MBAs. Uh, female Harvard graduates earn 30% less than male Harvard graduates. Now some of these numbers are really high. I mean, well, all of them are high, but like, did you say 
difference with physicians? Yeah, yeah. That is incredible. Yeah, that's really, really high. So all I can imagine, I haven't read the entire book, so I don't know, but what I imagine accounts for that is that as female physicians enter the workforce more, the kinds of jobs maybe that they're taking are devalued. I'm, I'm not certain. I know I remember reading quite a long time ago that in the Soviet Union, um, eventually um, the medical profession was dominated by women. But as women became doctors more than men, the pay went down. The same thing happened with teaching, actually. Years ago, teaching was primarily a male profession. And as women have become the dominant, you know, the representation in teaching, the whole status and amount of pay for teaching has gone down in our culture. Well, also, uh, there are a lot of people who would say that um, some of this gender stuff doesn't really apply to younger people, mm. for example, that uh, they don't they don't have some of these same issues or they don't see it the same way. But, uh, of course, my experience with a young person in my household is that uh, gender uh, issues and the gender binary is is still very strong. I mean, yes, as I mentioned earlier, and as you've often mentioned, uh, a lot of the challenge to gender norms is by younger people, but there's still quite a lot of gender belief going on in younger people. In fact, you were talking about a study that you heard about or read in, in particular that applied to um, uh, single mothers. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I had read this uh, study of teenage single mothers. Right, teenage single um, mothers, right. This, I think, gets into the way in which some of the gender roles which are are set up to say this is the way women are, this is the way men are, that was used to set up these opposing roles in order to say women shouldn't go out to work or women need to be financially dependent on men, women need to have men do the voting for them or represent them in public spaces. A lot of that at the level of institutions even though the pay difference, as I was pointing to, is still there, it, it has been overcome to a certain degree, but the way this affects the way people think about themselves and their interpersonal relationships, I think, is still very, very strong. Right. So the role for women, which we talked about last time, that said that the reality used to be that Women were not supposed to go out to work so that they had to be financially dependent upon the man. But this became a story in which women are emotionally dependent upon the man. Mm. Um, it, when we looked at the story of Pride and Prejudice, that women's whole life revolves around finding true love and finding that one person who defines them. That has kind of transcended the whole idea of whether you can support yourself financially or not. And you can see how strong that idea is in some of these young single mothers who, in their personal experience, have not seen any kind of example of what they imagine love is supposed to be like. They, they talk about this kind of idealized version of love, but when asked about, well, do you see this in any of the adults around you, or have you had any experience of this yourself? They say no, but this is what they're still looking for. So what what they're looking for is they believe 
true love, romantic love, is more important than any other relationship in their lives. And it's the one thing that's going to give their life meaning. And when they define true love, what, they, what they're talking about is it's a love which will not tolerate any kind of separation from the other person. It's, it's where you almost become the other person. You're with the other person at all times and become one with that person. It will last forever and there will be no conflict in it at all. Uh, the man will stay with and care for and protect them, resisting any kind of force or influence which will try to separate the man from them. And one thing they never mention is that they might be tempted to separate. It's always the fact that true love will keep a man with them and always connected to them. And that they cite in this study various stories um, which are their models for this kind of way of looking at the world, like Romeo and Juliet, or uh, Titanic, or The Notebook. That's what they, that's the way they think true love will eventually come into their lives, or what they're hoping for. And this is what, this is what this study is saying a lot of teenage women think today. Yeah, yeah, this is current. And I think you can see this, and it's not just teenage women, I mean, Again, going back to the last podcast, there's some reason why these romance narratives are the best-selling narratives. You know, why, why was Twilight such a huge success, not just with teenage girls, but with their mothers? Why is Fifty Shades of Grey the, <laughs> the best-selling novel of all time? So what, what does this mean for the gender binary? I mean, we can... With studies like this and, and our own experiences and, and just really just looking out at media, we can start to kind of divide out what today's gender binary looks like. You already started pointing some of the things out. Uh, the man, for example, the male role is uh, he's a protector in some manner. I mean, a lot, mm -hmm. of, a lot of this pertains a lot less to the, the man is the breadwinner and the woman stays home type of thing, but there's still that being the protector emotionally, so to speak, or being the protector in a lot of other ways, that pro right. that protector role is still there, even if that role doesn't necessarily include being the person that makes the most money for the household. Or am I wrong about that? Is it still expected that uh, men should be the one that make uh, the man should be the one that makes the most money? I think that is changing. You see in other studies that are done that the generation that's referred to as Gen X, that men in that generation still think that they are going to have to be the main breadwinner, but the women in that generation don't think so. Then when you get to millennials, it's more, both men and women are beginning to think that it's not the man who's going to necessarily be the primary breadwinner. But the downside of that is that they see that both people in the relationship will have to work full-time in order to make enough money, in order to make ends meet. So and their thinking that has an impact on, you know, their future plans for life and so on, right? I mean, there, there's, a, there's a consequence to that change in perspective. Yeah, let's see. The change there as far as family life is that um, 91% of Gen X women said they intended to have children. Only 55% of 
women in the millennial generation see themselves as having children. <laughs> so even though we seem to be making a, uh, what, what seemed to me anyway, as a step forward, you know, this notion, okay, well, uh, it doesn't have to be a man that's the breadwinner. Uh, a woman can be the breadwinner also. It's also leading young women to think less that they might want to have a family because they feel like they have to pick, I guess, between a family and a career, right? Right, yep. Mm -hmm. So, but, but the, of course, what I think what you told me before was that the, the young men in the millennials also feel that way, right? That Yes, they also feel that way. That they might also um, have to choose between family and a career. Yeah. Well, maybe that that's a good segue into thinking about the way in which some of this, these gender roles have affected men and the, the role of the breadwinner. And then I think that winds up affecting women now, too, as they start to see themselves in, in maybe in that role. Hmm is we had we had both uh, watched this uh, very interesting video where uh, a woman decided to try to live for a couple of years as a man in order to compare male and female experience. And certainly one of the things that she found was that men suffer from a kind of emotional stuntedness, that they they feel a lack of, um, ability to have intimate emotional relationships, actually, especially with other men. They can really only have them if they have them at all with women, I think, because if we're thinking about this opposite sex role idea, women, uh, emotions are supposed to be women's work. It's what, you know, what's, that's what they're good at. So if we go back in time to think about where this comes from for men, and I think especially for working class men, first and foremost, and then it's really crept up into middle class too. When this opposing role, gender divide, uh, happened, this was also during the time of the Industrial Revolution and the real emergence of capitalism, and so what happened for men was that you have this idea of a workforce that is completely independent of, economically independent of household and family and children. That is, if you go back to something like an older model, like an agricultural model, or one in which you are selling your own product, then the value of your labor you would be taking into account things like, okay, I'm deciding to have children, so whatever I'm making on my farm or whatever I'm making in my shop, I've got to factor in those costs of my supporting a family or of my having children. Right. When you have this new industrial workforce, there's the idea that you know, what you're, you are paying them only to be the workforce. You're paying them only for their labor. And the the cost of taking care of a house and raising children now falls onto women and they're not doing it for a financial reward supposedly but because it's their natural role so that becomes romantic and marital work rather than something that's part of the economic system and the cost of that for men is that men are now supposedly these strong independent sort of heroic figures that don't need attachment to others, don't need 
emotional intimacy, don't need connection, that that's a very, very high price for men. Um, and do you think that is still part of the gender binary today? Yeah, yeah it's, yeah. it's still very much part of the gender binary. What we saw in that video that this woman was noticing were things like uh, the fact that she would make friends with men as another man and then when she went back and she revealed that she was a woman, they would let her in on things that they, they never talked to her about as a man. Like one of the guys that she became very close friends with, it wasn't until she revealed that she was a woman that he told her that his wife had cancer. Right. So there's this kind of male bonding that takes place, but without without enough connection, without enough emotional intimacy, such that they're really dependent on women, uh, strangely enough. I mean, the reality is that they're dependent on women for their emotional needs, but the ideal is that they're somehow independent. Right. <laughs> and I think this results in a number of things. I think it results in male rage when they become aware of their dependence, when Things like the fact that they're supposed to be the hero are challenged. You know, when women leave uh, a man who's being abusive to them, I think that's one of the ways in which the man suddenly realizes his emotional dependence on this woman and, again, can, can become even more physically abusive and, and violent. There's also the fact that human intimacy is really nuanced and broad, and it covers a lot of ground. Yeah. And it seems like part of what you're saying here is that for, for men, the, the range of intimacy that they're allowed mm -hmm. basically gets narrowed clear down to uh, sexual intercourse. <laughs> right, <laughs> That's what right. they get. Yeah. And so it, it's little wonder then that, you know, th this stereotype emerges of men are only interested in that and that's all they think about and they can do it with just about anybody and they like to go to strip clubs and whatever. Well, if if you take a human being and you take all of the the huge world of human intimacy and you shrink it down to this one place where they can experience it, and not just when... And, not just where they can experience it, but where the expectation is that that's all they ever want to experience. It is there. Well, then you get what you made. I mean, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, really. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think this uh, myth that men are uh, supposedly emotionally independent me and means that their needs are always imagined as being, as you were saying, physical. They're, they're only physical. They're Somehow they're not emotional that that's how they're imagined as being. And that makes them very vulnerable in our culture, in, in one way, more vulnerable, I think, than women who have been allowed to be intimate with men and with other women. You know, emotions, emotional intimacy is still allowed to them, and dependence on other people is still allowed to them. So for for men, that makes them vulnerable to keep on trying to fill that emptiness with things that are physical and material, buying things, including buying other people. Yeah. Well, and, and part of this, too, is to, to look at the, the other side of the coin a little bit. You were talking about how men are sort of denied emotional in, intimacy and in, a, a, emotional uh, breadth in general. But then, of course, this is 
put on to the female side of the equation, well, women are just emotional. Right. Or mostly emotional. Uh, their rational faculties are less. They let their emotions sort of get in the way of being rational. So, so then, you know, a woman who maybe in her own life, uh, she relies quite a bit on uh, rationality and logic. Maybe her emotional life is just happens not to be that complex because that's possible for any human being, male or female. But the world has a difficult time dealing with her because mm. <laughs> she's not supposed to be like that. Right. And they they think of her as masculine and, and so on and so forth. So, I mean, I, I think I think that's a, another interesting divide in the current uh, gender binary. And this has been around for a while, too, is this notion that men are logical and rational and keep their cool. Mm -hmm. Women are emotional and whatever rationality they do have, which they're given more credit for that now than they used to be, because, of course, you know, we have women who are doctors and women who are engineers and things. But even even the women doctors and engineers will tell you that they're treated differently in their field. They're expected to be more emotional or nurturing or or less uh, logical or something than their male counterparts. Right. But even going back to, um, you know, what we were saying about millennials and this idea that 55% of millennial women think they're not going to have children, I think if you don't change, if all you do is keep the binary ideas in place, the roles in place, but you say, okay, we're going to now have women do it too, so women can <laughs> join the workforce and not have children and, you know, not right. have families and not experience emotional intimacy. That, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's not going to work either. No. Um, no. and some of the, some of the ways in which I think this kind of strict division, I mean, in describing it to you, I, I think in an email I was saying that it, it's really, a distortion which affects both genders. But one of the ways you can see it is in statistics that show things like when men and women divorce or when um, men and women lose a partner, uh, a husband or a wife, to death, that husbands are often much more depressed by the loss of a female partner because that's their main emotional contact yeah. in the world. Um, whereas women tend to come out of those things better supported and are sometimes, uh, especially in a marital situation which has been problematic, they come out of the divorce less depressed. They're more depressed in marriage. More married women are depressed than single women because they're having to carry the whole emotional weight because all, you know, the, the emotions are all their work. Right, right. So, yeah, again, I think I think if if a person thinks about it for just a second, they could themselves sit down with a piece of paper, make a little T graph <laughs> and put male on one side and female on the other and put all the expectations there are of being a man mm -hmm. and all the expectations there are of being a woman. And you know what? I'll bet it wouldn't take them very long to sit and list some of the the drawbacks of this, maybe they'd even think of some of the things that you've already been talking about on the man's side of things, uh, on the woman's side of, of things in terms of pay and so on. 
But the big question that comes up in all this is if this gender binary is, well, first of all, let's let's just make a point about uh, the binary. And, and like you said, the, probably the biggest thing about it is it's so oppositional. Although I would argue that conceptually it's hard for it to be anything else because if it wasn't so oppositional, how could there be a binary? Yeah, that's true. Um, but the, the, the notion that because of the physical traits that you were born with, and in this case, sexual physical traits, you are going to have a certain temperament and have a certain personality and be suited for a certain occupation in life. That's an idea that doesn't really have any basis in reality. And supporting the statement I just made is everything that you've just said. Just about everybody has a problem with this yeah, gender binary yeah. thing. And if if the gender binary was was a valid expression of how human beings work biologically, then you wouldn't have virtually every single person who has to live under it feeling oppressed by it. Yeah, so, yeah. So let's let's just take that as evidence enough that the gender binary is a complete, not just a complete social construct, cultural construct, but one that has really no basis in reality. Well, then that means that we could we could more reasonably and, and more comfortably live in a world where uh, gender, if there was an idea of gender at all, it would be one where there isn't a, a binary, oppositional or otherwise, and it's just however many genders there are, it's something that people can express personally and individually. Maybe there's a gender for every person or something. But but without the binary, without that oppositional uh, feature, people, you know, if you're a woman and you're really logical and, and your emotional life is very simple, you could just be that. And nobody would think that you're masculine. Right. They would just think that's the way you are. And if you're a man who's very nurturing and very uh, passive, and maybe even a little passive aggressive. Nobody would think you're being feminine. They would just think that's the way you are. That we would all get along better and be happier in a society like that. And given that the only thing stopping us from having a society like that is this thing we've constructed and that we reinforce, it, it's kind of baffling, isn't it? I mean, if, if, it, if it's so bad for us and we could get rid of it, why don't we get rid of it? Before I answer that question, I just want to go back to one thing you were saying, when, because when you were describing the personalities of, say, a woman who's very logical but not very emotional, I think even the idea that logic and emotion are opposing things is part of this gender binary. Yes, it is. Um, that's, that's exactly right. Because a lot of neurological studies have shown that if you take away people's ability to feel things, then they can't make logical decisions well. Right. So you know, I I I think to to say one thing dominates over the other and that they're not somehow very intertwined things, rationality and emotion, the the fact that we take those two things and separate them as if they're opposing forces in our minds, I think that comes down to this kind of gender binary idea. No, I, I totally agree. In fact, we we often divide th ourselves up into more pieces than that: physical, yeah. mental, yeah. social. Yep. Uh, this is all artificial, and it can actually dividing things that way can be useful in some types of analysis. But to to make 
those divisions and say they're real and that they're separate and that I'm more this than that or the other thing. Yeah, that that's 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 not really how human beings are. But this again, this speaks to exactly the question I'm asking. When we have all of these things that are so contrary to reality, I mean, like scientifically testable reality, that's that's one thing that I mean. But I mean, lots of cultures have things, features that are contrary to testable reality. That's not a problem in and of itself. But when that thing that is contrary to testable reality is so painful to so many people and and it serves really no useful purpose well wait a minute destructive yeah how does it stick around it serves no useful purpose i i'm not sure that that's completely true um here we go (laughs) to find out what useful purpose all this well i'm I'm scared to find out (laughs) i mean i think one thing that one useful purpose that this all serves going back to the the structure that I was pointing to that said that you sort of take away the you take away the real foundation about women's dependence financial dependence on men and make it emotional and you imagine men as emotionally independent and and these kind of independent workforce then one thing that benefits is the capitalist system and and profit because now you're not paying for the upkeep the person who is employing someone is not paying for the upkeep of children or a, a home and i think you see that a lot in our society that when we artificially now try to bring in the payment for that that's still required in things like um the snap program right food stamps or WIC, women, infant, children, right? <laughs> that That's about taking care of all of those aspects of society. Then people say, well, I'm not going to pay for that. I mean, <laughs> why should I pay for that? So what you're saying is that we have this, we have this thing, the gender binary, that is ostensibly uh, scientifically untenable. It it's damaging. It's it's causing people mental health problems, really. But the reason that this thing sticks around is because lots of people are making a whole lot of money off of it. Yeah, I think that's certainly one reason why. <laughs> and 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 you can't sort of uh, people don't feel that they can question that that somehow they're allowed to be making money because. They've worked hard for that. They deserve that. Whereas the kind of work that's done in raising children, that's not work. That doesn't, right. that doesn't deserve remuneration in any way. Right, right. And you, and, I'm, and then I'm that, not saying, gets, I'm not saying right is in it's not work. I'm saying right is in Yeah, yeah, that no, is that, what, yeah. That's what people think. Yeah. And, and it, it carries over into things like the kind of pay that we give to people who do it for work. Right. Well, in other words, it's woven into the power structure in a lot of other ways. I mean, it's not really just about money. It's about politics. It's about, well, it, it's just there's a kind of a negative feedback loop, too, I think, in what you're talking about is, you know, you've got you've got the uh, corporate world that is enculturated to think this way and to do things this way. And then they reach down to the worker and say, well, if if you also accept this way of thinking, You'll be able to make money, and you'll be able to climb the ladder, and you'll be successful. And 
you know, the worker buys that argument, at least provisionally, because the worker needs money. The worker needs to make a living. I mean, basically, this whole system sort of feeds on itself and keep and self-perpetuates. And it, it kind of makes you wonder. I mean, now my question has changed. Before I was asking, well, why does this thing stick around? And now I'm wondering, how is it ever going to go away? <laughs> because, because everybody relies on it working in order for them just to survive. Yeah, I know. I mean, that that's uh, even, for instance, when one of the criticisms that's been made of feminism in this feminism in the sixties and seventies is that it really, even though it was questioning gender roles, it bought into the same hierarchical system about work. So it was demanding that women be allowed to enter into the corporate structure, for instance. But in order to do that, then somebody had to take over the roles of child care and housekeeping. And then that became women of different races or women of different classes. So only women with a, a certain race privilege moved into the male position. And it and it was still kind of regarded as the male position, and yeah, I mean, yeah. But right now, that's a that's kind of a, if I understand correctly, that's kind of a a big thing in in present day uh, feminism is trying to be more sensitive to those issues about race and class. Yeah, right? yeah, very much so. I think because of those criticisms that were made. But those are really sticky issues, aren't they? Yeah, because you could say that. Um, Men of certain of a certain class really, you know, don't have the the privileges that we're talking about when we're talking about male privilege. You know, men who are rural workers or who are coal miners, they're in that position of having to be that independent workforce, but they're they're not really profiting by it very much. Well, let's let's talk about privilege just for a second to make sure we're clear about what that means. Yeah, yeah. What it what it means is in the gender binary, uh, we've been talking about that it divides everyone up in these one of these two camps, and we've been talking about how this is a disadvantage really to both camps. Uh, both nobody wins in the gender binary. Uh, at the same time, it is true that the gender binary makes it possible for men to get into certain positions of power, like the presidency, for example, most of the members of Congress, most of the justices uh, in the Supreme Court, uh, doctors, uh, lawyers, uh, CEOs. Yeah. The gender, the gender binary does allow men to be in those types of positions and be making a lot of decisions that have an impact on everybody, including women. So what happens is, Culturally, men begin to see their world in a in a particular way that they think is true for everybody, basically, including women. And maybe some of the things, some of the roadblocks women run into in their jobs, for example. I mean, this this is a very typical way that male privilege plays itself out is a woman who knows that she's been passed over for promotions or that she know because she's a woman or who knows that she's not gotten certain opportunities because she's a woman goes to a man in her field and points this out and the man tells her she's crazy yeah <laughs> because or the, because it the has man to has be never, right it has to be has some other reason anything like yeah that. yeah so so what we mean by privilege is that 
the, the, the gender binary affords things to men that it doesn't afford to women that might cause men to not notice or realize that for women to get some of the same things that men get, they have to work twice as hard. Or maybe those things aren't available to those women at all mm -hmm. uh, or any number of other things. And so when before, when you were talking about male privilege, you were pointing out that that when you look at when you look at gender as a whole, you might see a lot of male privilege. But when you look at it socioeconomically, a lot of a lot of men who are in a different socioeconomic class don't have the privilege that, say, the the white middle class men have. Mm -hmm. And and we can start. And when we realize that, when we note that we can. It, the picture starts to get a little more complicated in terms of what is male privilege and so on. Right. Yeah, but getting back to your question of, of how we're going to change things, um, in the United States right now, it seems to me that we've kind of, we've kind of gone backwards a little bit because we, we are putting a lot of labels on things like if, if you, for instance, talk about people getting more parental leave or any of the kinds of programs that would have to be government instituted. And now it's like, no, we're not going to be European about it. We're not going to be socialists. <laughs> we're not. So that's a very communist way of thinking. So anything in which you, you start to draw attention to the fact that these are unpaid or low paid positions in society, instead of seeing it as a pay issue, they see the the government coming in and instituting some kind of authoritarian control over the individual. Mm -hmm. Redistribution of wealth. Yeah, yeah. All that stuff starts coming into the conversation. And, and even women, I, I certainly have seen this in uh, blogs of in various places, women who have chosen, for instance, not to have children in order to be successful on the corporate ladder, to run their own businesses, for instance, they then tend to object to, why should I have to pay taxes in order to pay for somebody's maternity leave when I've decided not to have children? In, instead of seeing this, uh, in, instead of seeing the raising of children as something that is it's beneficial to all of society and should be valued and needs to be paid for in some way. But it's it's not just something that some part of the population does because they're naturally good at it. <laughs> and they like it, so why should they be paid for it? Right, exactly. Yeah, you shouldn't get paid for something you enjoy doing. That would be, <laughs> that would be crazy. <laughs> That's crazy talk. <laughs> Only you professors get to do that. And we've got some words for you guys, too. Okay. All you teachers right. out there. Yeah, I get, I get what you're saying. And it and the conversation gets very gendered, doesn't it? I mean, there's definitely a... I mean, that's something else we haven't really talked about yet, is this gender binary manifests itself in the language and in how people talk about things. Right, um, right. I mean, you know, I mean, think of, think of, uh, we won't say any of them here, but think of some of the worst insults you can, you can say to a man in our culture. 
they're they're all some way of of calling him or equating him to a woman. Right. Uh, yeah. You know. <laughs> And, uh, well, not, not a few of them aren't, but most of them are. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of times when, when people are arguing and they want to insult each other, and the, the, the people talking can also be women doing this, many times the insults that they'll hurl toward each other are insults that suggest that there's something wrong with being a woman. Yeah. Like recently I was watching a video of uh, this young boy was eating uh, he was being forced to eat some vegetable that he didn't want to eat. <laughs> and uh, he was being kind of immature about it. But I think uh, his sister was there, and I think she wanted to indicate that he was being a baby about it. Mm-hmm. But the way she expressed this was, was, do we need to go to the store and buy you some tampons? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. In other words, the insinuation here was... I mean, again, I think what she was trying to say was he was being immature or babyish or like, come on, grow up kind of thing. But the but the way she expressed it was that he was being a woman on her period. So wow, and this sister of his. Now, this this girl who said this, I think, is like, you know, a preteen or just yeah. early teen, early teenager. So this isn't. So I thought. And so this is kind of a new thing. I asked uh, I asked uh my goddaughter if if you know if that was right do people say that kind of thing your age and she says yeah they do so so you know the, this gender binary and it's it's preference in many ways to men in certain ways not in always of course but in in institutional ways uh seeps into our language and and of course when it seeps into our language it seeps into how we think because that young girl who said that She's not just parroting what her friends say or whatever. There's an attitude being formed there yeah, about yeah. what women are like. And, you know, there's this assumption. She already has it in her head that if someone is complaining about something or being overly dramatic about something, because that's another thing. This this boy was being kind of dramatic about not wanting to eat these vegetables. That that's a that's a woman thing. Yeah, that's those are feminine qualities. Yeah, those are that's feminine behavior, and even even the, even women in conversation will speak to them each other this way, sort of putting down putting down their own sex. So, uh, and there are uh, there's a document a documentary out called Misrepresentation that a lot of people might have seen that that talks about the impact on on young girls of media images that show women in a certain way, but not in other ways. Uh, one of the one of the slogans that they like to say in the organization that released this film was, you can't be what you can't see. So if young girls are being raised and they're what, they're, all of their media images are, are women who are, you know, weak or not very smart or right. <laughs> they're, nev- they're never president of the United States, uh, or they're, you know, they're not a CEO or an engineer. Well, then young girls aren't, might not aspire to be that because they never see that. Right. So there's some real psychological and social implications in all this. And it's very complicated because, as you said, there's there's certain it breaks down in terms of socioeconomic status and race, especially in our culture. It, it, it's really involved. It's and it's it's real, really real. Yeah. <laughs> and, and real people are being impacted by it in some really negative ways. And you reminded me of, of, of at least three things. One was 
I sent you a video uh, where Ellen DeGeneres talks about uh, the new Bic lady pens. Yeah. <laughs> um, Made and, especially and, for women. Yes, and that's an interesting de- development. I think that as women are actually entering the workforce more and the institutions are becoming more open, the cultural roles are they're becoming more entrenched or people are emphasizing them more in in things like marketing um saying that oh lady pens because you know women aren't capable of holding like real pens <laughs> because you know they're too fat or something i don't know why so you need to have this slender pen for the women's shaped hand and they're all they all come in pink and purple because of course those are biologically yeah. <laughs> Female colors or something. Right. It, it, it's also marketing, though. I mean, you yeah. know, you, you've got marketers out there who are constantly looking to to find new demographics to uh, appeal to. And sometimes they're not thinking about anything else except, you know, how are we going to make money in this deal? And, and, it, and only after they've released something like this and Ellen DeGeneres makes fun of it do they realize, oh, yes but you still have to ask the question of why when they thought well we're gonna we're gonna market to women they thought of this i mean right they're still playing on the cultural role yeah obviously there were uh several adidas commercials that i sent you some of them featuring men and all the men are extremely active and of course adidas you know you would think that of course you're going to show active people yeah. But in the Adidas ads for women, the women are generally standing still, and they're doing very um, either slow-moving or no-moving. They're just standing there with the product on. Even if they're posed as an athlete, they're not moving. <laughs> That's So that was another marketing thing that I was thinking of. But the, the last thing I was thinking of was this whole new trend that's being talked about a lot called sex-positive feminism Mm -hmm. and um, the development, especially in younger women, of this idea of being able to have multiple sexual partners without intimacy, sort of modeling themselves after um, what had been thought of as male roles. And on, on the one hand, I do understand where the impetus about sex positive feminism comes from of the idea of that women are shamed around sex, you know, the whole slut shaming idea, which actually even as women are becoming more promiscuous is is still out there even among promiscuous women, the idea that um there's something more negative about that for women than men is still very prevalent. Right. Um, but just as I was talking about in the, the workforce example, the idea that to move into a role in which you are independent of other people and don't make emotional connections and your needs are all going to be met in this physical way, that, that has all the same drawbacks whether it's men or women who are doing it. That's right. And I think that Again, one of the reasons why women might be moving in that direction that isn't a positive thing is because it it fits into the whole way in which our society is motivated to go on consuming things that we 
buy things in order to fill, fulfill this emptiness because we don't have connection to each other or feelings of purpose outside of the buying more and more stuff. Right. And while we, you and I can both support the notion that a, a woman should have a right to do all that stuff just like a man has that right to do all that stuff, let's not forget that it would be nice if neither men nor women had to do those things in right. order to feel good about themselves or to, I mean, yes, a man shouldn't be able to become a drug addict to deal with his problems while a woman isn't able to do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we'll agree that, that that's a terrible double standard, but I think we can all also agree that it's better if nobody has to become an addict because nobody has to sit there and soothe the, the horrible uh, emptiness they feel in a culture that's completely centered on hyper-individualism, consumerism, only exchange relationships, high levels of objectification of oneself and others. You know, yeah, I mean, women and men should both have a right to engage in those things. Yes, but it wouldn't it be better? Well, it's not an issue of better or worse. It, it's also true that we probably <laughs> would like a culture where nobody feels like that's a, a place they have to go or, or are compelled to go. Yeah, I mean, a lot of books that I've, read on this or again when I'm on forums where women are talking about this I often see the idea put forward that sex is good and my response to that is it's not that sex is bad but it's not good either I mean sex is an action that has it has no good or bad meaning or value outside of the people who are engaged in it and the connection they have with each other to, to, to just say, to try to put a label on it and say, ah, you know, we're resisting the puritanical society who's telling us sex is bad, so, ah, it must be good. Well, now you're playing into the consumer society that tells you value is outside of yourself. You know, if you can just get this thing, you will be happy. Well, on that note, <laughs> on that happy yeah, note, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if we're going to what more we have to say about gender. Although I suspect there is some more, especially since, since uh, have, this recording has gone significantly over an hour. So, if our listeners hear it just an hour long, they're going to know that a, quite a bit was edited <laughs> out. We're going to have to maybe revisit it. Yeah. But uh, in the meantime, um, thank you, Jazz. Thanks. Thanks to you too joining me today for this conversation and thanks to our listeners have a good day everybody bye-bye grapevine is a production of aether theater music is provided by chris nook